Well, basically, ancient prophetic texts will tell us that there's a period of time known as the birth pangs, and it's very specific. The prophecy calls out there'll be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, and troublesome times. Here's the deal, when that prophecy was penned 2,000 years ago, and this is what makes, this is what makes, I should make some of your, our listeners here, uh, the hair stand up at the back of their neck, because 2,000 years ago, there's no way to track any of this stuff. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons. Hey everybody, welcome again to another episode of Canary Cry Radio. My name is Gons. Basil has been on tour with a musical group that he's a part of. And combine that with the fact that myself and Doug Hamp and L.A. Marzuli were busy trying to put together this prophecy forum thing last week. Uh, and it resulted in no show for about a month, no Canary Cry Radio for almost a month. And which is too bad because one of the things that I wanted to do as a New Year's resolution was to put out an episode every week. And it just didn't happen. I just dropped the ball. So I'm one of the, uh, what is it, 90% of people who can't keep their New Year's resolutions. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the conference because it was a lot of fun. It was definitely a good time. Um, It was pretty stressful to get everything together and, and get there on time and have the presentation ready and everything like that. But it was a great payoff because I got to meet quite a bit of people. Many of you who are probably listening now, you guys came up to me and expressed your uh, love for the show and for just the appreciation for what we do here. And that's just great. I love that. It's just so encouraging. Um, And all I have to say is praise God, because without God, we wouldn't be doing this. And without you guys, we wouldn't have any kind of incentive to do anything related to uh, Canary Cry Radio or otherwise. So just wanted to say thanks. And if you couldn't make it, that's okay. What I'm going to do today is ramble on for a little bit because uh, my partner in crime is not here. But I'm also going to play the audio of my presentation that um, I thought it went okay. I was a little nervous. Uh, When you're up there, it's it's different. It's a rush, partly. I, I was telling Doug afterwards, I'm like, hey, this is pretty cool. You know, you get a little little rush going just from, you know, being on stage. And, and I had a little bit of that when I was in the band, but it's different when you're playing music. You know, you sort of have to rely on other dudes to hit their parts so that you can hit yours. Uh, but this is different. It was like, this is all you. You got the stage. Uh, you, you know, you just have to keep people's attention. I was, I spoke for about an hour and 10 minutes, so it's hard for me to pay attention to anything for an hour and 10 minutes. So it was, uh, definitely a challenge to make sure that, uh, people didn't fall asleep. I didn't see anybody fall asleep. So I guess that's, that's good. But, um, there were definitely like one or two parts. I, I went over it today because I, edited the video together and hopefully that video will be up on YouTube in the next couple days here. Just basically me talking on the corner and just showing the slides and I added extra videos and pictures and stuff that related to the things I was talking about. But um, one thing though that was kind of funny, I guess, good and bad, was that 
the camera that I used to record my talk was a little GoPro 3. And I have a friend, a buddy named uh, Rob, who let me borrow the GoPro 3, which was a blessing. It was great. Um, however, my stepdaughter was the one who was filming. And one of the things with the GoPro is that there's no back screen. There's no screen for you to check out what you're seeing. And I know there's a way to hook it up through Wi-Fi, but you know, I, I had just gotten it from my buddy and I didn't really have time to really get into it and try to figure it out. So it's really funny because the video footage is, you know, <laughs> first off, um, because the GoPro is more made for action, the place where my stepdaughter was sitting was pretty far away from me. And so I'm like this little tiny thing it, it, and the footage is so wide that it picks up um, it's got good range. It's great for like skydiving and stuff, but it's just not good for uh, just filming someone talking. And so that's the reason why when you, if you guys check out the video, I'm not in it the whole time speaking. And when I am, it's just a little sliver <laughs> and I just push myself over to the side of the stage or excuse me, the side of the screen because it was just kind of challenging to uh, put any focus on me, which is fine. I don't really care. I, I really re not rather show my face too often on video and whatnot, which I guess is going to happen eventually. You know, I did the Skype thing with Doug prior to the conference and, and uh, well, anyway, it was just a great time. A lot of fun. Doug did a great job. LA did a great job. Um, LA told us some things that he learned down in Peru when he was down there and he's uh, getting ready to release his book on the trail of the Nephilim. And it's just, uh, he's doing some amazing work. He's um, really going after looking for these bones of Nephilim. And it's fascinating. I mean, I wish I can do that. I wish I can just do this full time and start hunting around for Nephilim bones, you know, but um, <laughs> that's the work for LA for now. And maybe, maybe in the future, we'll do something where we uh, go somewhere. But, you know, one of the things that I learned from LA this weekend which was fascinating to me just because locally speaking, uh, he had mentioned that there were some 10 foot giants that were found in the 1920s on a small Island, uh, right off the coast of California here called Catalina Island. And I have been to Catalina Island. I was a kid when I went there, there's a, a lot of camps and stuff that go on. You take a boat, you get down there. It's about 26 miles or so off the coast of California. And um, I don't remember much of the trip. It was just, you know, hanging out in a tent and running around on the beach and things like that. And so it was just fascinating to hear him talk about what he uncovered there. And actually, he didn't uncover the bones. What he found was the journal of the archaeologist who dug these things up. And the journal was recently released. And of course, the bones are missing. They're gone. So apparently LA went down there to try to see what was going on. And he discovered that not only was the excavation site pretty much blocked off, but to take a picture of anything in that area would cost him $7,000. So... Yeah, I mean, I guess that's pretty telling, right? If it costs $7,000 to take a picture of a location, what are they trying to hide? You know, wh why are they trying to hide something that should be open to everyone? And also what was fascinating was LA contacted some other archaeologists who have knowledge of this man's work. I forget the guy's name who was uh, the guy who dug up the bones in the 1920s. 
But the response LA got was, oh, he didn't know how to measure. And uh, again, what kind of excuse is that? You know, you, you don't say that unless you, uh, you have something to hide. You know, how can you say that your fellow archaeologists, even though it may have been a, a century ago, didn't know how to measure? It just doesn't make any sense. So I think the more we do this work and the more guys like LA are out there trying to expose this thing, the more it's going to come out. And I don't know how... Well, I do know how I have a, at least a th working theory and a lot of people have come up with the same sort of idea of a scientific dictatorship where, you know, basically the academic world has control over what is discovered and what is disseminated into the masses and they can control that by funding certain projects and not funding other projects. So really money has been the tool that has guided this deception all along. So, and, you know, I touch on that a little bit in my talk, but, you know, I was surprised at just some of the people that came up to me. And one fine lady came up to me and said that she, uh, you know, that the film Age of Deceit changed her life and, and everything. And it's just so touching to me. And all, all I can say is praise God, because, you know, I, I don't really, sometimes I forget, you know, the things I talk about in the film. And so somebody will bring something up and I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I talked about that. You know, it's one of those things where you work on it and at the time you're doing it, you're, you're really into it. But, you know, once you release it, the information is in your head. And if someone brings it up, you remember it. But you don't really think about it too much. You know, it's just out there. And, um, boy, I just think it's really the work of the Lord to just bring people to the YouTube channel and, and get people to uh, check out the film and met another gentleman who uh, was really excited to uh, be able to meet me and stuff. And boy, it's like, I, I felt like such a goof, you know, <laughs> one guy um, asked for an autograph on the DVD and I'm like, okay, cool. That's, that's awesome. I'll, I'll sign it for you. But it was like, really, <laughs> I'm not the, uh, I'm not the celebrity type. So um, it was definitely humbling and definitely uh, an experience. It was fun, but you know, hopefully moving on this, this weekend, really what it did also was uh, moving forward as I've been putting together Age of Deceit 2, it really inspired me to just really dig into the word and, and really uh, do some more research and put out stuff for people that, you know, I think there's a lot of brilliant minds out there, but I, I think they just simply don't have time to go through all the digging. And sometimes they're not willing to, you know, which I understand um, because I will say just putting together this PowerPoint, and this was my first PowerPoint, so uh, I had to learn how to use PowerPoint, which isn't that difficult, but definitely a little bit different. And uh, just organizing your thoughts and, and making sure the thing flows. And, and there was just a lot of things to consider. And just moving forward, though, it really inspired me to to study the Bible even more and and just look for connections and look for things that are relevant and are just good, you know, information, little tidbits of information that I think all of us can use to, um, as tools. You know, I, I feel like all of this work and, and the work of others, uh, a lot of guys like LA and, and Doug and, and Russ Dizdar and Chris White and, and, uh, Derek and Sharon Gilbert, Tom Horn and Chris Putnam and, and all the guests we've had on and, and everybody that does this work. It's really, for us not just to consume, but to use as tools in a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel message. And, you know, when we have 
the right tools in the ways uh, in the way that we can address a lot of the questions and rejections and and objections that we hear the better off the gospel is i mean the gospel doesn't need us but but at the same time if we can use some of these tools it's going to bring people in i think it all works together and you know there was an email that came that uh, that came to us both uh, la myself and doug and this person expressed how their child had walked away from the faith but his interest in the nephilim brought him back to faith so for anyone who's out there just bashing people that talk about nephilim well there you go the interest of um, a young person in the nephilim brought them back to the bible to christ so you can't say that it's not working and to some extent and i think we're going to see more and more of young people asking these kinds of questions being curious about it and wanting to know uh, what's really going on and you know the other thing i really found was that all of us none of us have all the answers but all of us are in this quest to sort of uncover the little details that are in the bible and just try to understand what really went on and i think partially i think uh there is somewhat of a, a movement coming that is going to incorporate uh, a lot of this nephilim framework in the apologetic side of of just acad- academic apologetics if you will just mainstream apologetics because right now you go to uni- a university uh, and you study apologetics you're probably not going to get nephilim as part of your argument to use against the old Testament or use for the old testament god especially pertaining to uh tribes that god tells us to wipe out so there's an author named paul copen and he wrote a book called is god a moral monster making sense of the old testament god and he does a very good job an excellent job of defending the old testament god but it, there are points and i haven't read the entire thing i've listened to a lot of his interviews and i've, le- I've read excerpts from his book but there are points when even you as as a believer and you so want <laughs> you so want them to make a really clear good point um you can just tell there's just a little bit of dancing around the fact that god asked to wipe out tribes there's always this logic of like well you know you wipe out the soldiers but you know that they were so evil that uh you know they had to wipe out the children as well because obviously you know the children that would be born into such a tribe would most definitely turn out evil and it would be a perpetual and generational problem so god just said wipe them out well yeah but but why were they so evil and wouldn't it make a lot more sense if god was telling the israelites to wipe them out simply because they weren't human or at least totally human and they were carrying the nephilim bloodline that came down somehow after the flood and um you know it's just really i just wish people or at least the academic circles would would take a look at this nephilim thing a little bit more seriously they don't want to because they're they're sort of tied to the western uh almost materialistic worldview in the sense that you know they use logic and rationality and things like that and if to a certain degree it's necessary and a lot of it i think philosophically speaking the bible is very consistent with um logic 
However, there are moments when mythology or the mythical worldview of the Bible is necessary because if you really think about the Bible, and this was a point that really came up a lot this weekend, if you think about the Bible, we're talking about a lot of miracles, right? And we're talking about, uh, you know, obviously God splitting the Red Sea, uh, Jonah being eaten by a fish and coming back out later, and and Jesus walking on water and turning water into wine and healing people. And I mean, there's so many miracles, and we're talking about the supernatural. But when it comes to something like Genesis six and the sons of God uh, mating with human women, producing Nephilim, oh no, that can't be. When that's something that's you know, of course, rooted in supernatural, but the effect being very much physical. And uh, that's a that's a point that I make in the talk that the spiritual corruption leads to physical corruption. And um, when you think of it in those terms, it's very obvious that, you know, the, the events in Genesis 6 are very important to understand in the trajectory of reading the Old Testament. I mean, I read through the Old Testament now with a, with a brand new fervor, you know, just new goggles. And I read through it and I go, wow, the, the understanding of Genesis 6 makes a world of a difference in understanding a lot of what went on. And even in the New Testament where the pagan goddesses and, and things like that when they're in Ephesus and, and just there's so many little things that tie together that make sense that the lowercase g gods, for one, were not simply these uh, pie-in-the-sky mythological beings that these guys were worshiping, but that they were actual beings, number one. And number two, that the Nephilim theme is um, is very prevalent. And you know, somebody asked at the conference during the Q&A section, you know, or session. I said section when I, when I was up on stage too. Q&A session. A gentleman asked, um, you know, what, what does this have to do with, with the gospel, with evangelism? He brought up the point that in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, you know, there was no talk about Nephilim. There was no talk about the sons of God. There was none of that. It was just the gospel and you're saved. And so how does you know, talking about this issue relate to it at all. And, you know, I, I think it's a really important point to, to make in that instance is that the people in the first century, I think they had a better grasp of this than we do today when it comes to ancient history, as far as what led them to where they were. Um, if you read Josephus, Josephus flat out says that they were bones of giants of nephilim giants basically on display in the first century so when you think about that you're talking about a culture that very much understood what what the history was of man and what uh the significance of jesus uh, coming and, and dying and and resurrecting what what all that really meant and i just think it's a very important point because if you ignore that, it's just kind of a nice thing that Jesus did and all this stuff, but there's there's a much deeper uh, spiritual implication that goes all the way through to the book of Revelation. And I just think it's, it's vital that we at least acknowledge Genesis 6. Even if you don't want to get into all the other things that, that come along with it, the obviously, you know, looking at UFOs and looking at all this stuff, I think it's just vital that you at least let others know, hey, go read Genesis 6. Just just tell me what you think. Go read the first 20 verses of Genesis 6 and, and let me know what you think happened. What What is God trying to tell us there? Why is it important? You know, it, it, it's appalling to me that, that uh, 
a lot of, you know, people who hold on to the Bible will say, you know, every word is inspired, it's inerrant and things of that nature. But when it comes to verses that are uncomfortable, you know, they don't, they don't really, well, that doesn't really, you know, address the gospel or that doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't really matter to me. How does it apply to me today? And, uh, and, and, you know, again, the point of, and we bring this up over and over and over again, and I feel like a, a broken record here, but this idea of uh, Jesus saying, as the days of Noah were, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. I just think people that were in the audience were like, whoa, as the days of Noah, you mean the sons of God coming down, mating with human women and the Nephilim running around? Those big giants that that you know spilled blood everywhere those guys that's not going to be cool <laughs> you know and there's a reason why it says you know unless these days are shortened no flesh shall survive right i mean there's so many verses that jesus tells us just flat out it's how it's going to be in the end times and all indications when we look around is that we're headed right into that storm i mean we are really in those days and um you know, I've, I've heard somebody, I can't remember who it was, somebody who I, I respect mention, I think they were trying to put off this idea of using that verse as in the days of Noah to indicate or imply any Nephilim in the end times. And because the point that they were making was, well, you know, what do we do about, you know, people lived for hundreds of years in the days of Noah. Do we, you know, apply that as well? And it's like, well, it's very possible because where science is taking us and medicine and, you know, technology where it's taking us is a place where we live longer, we live healthier, things like that. And um, so anyway, I, I, I'm kind of rambling on and on and on here, but uh, I just thought it was a great weekend. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to meet people face to face who, who are listening. I know you're listening out there. It was great to meet you. And I'm looking forward to meeting more people that listen to the show. And I'm really excited about the future of not just Canary Cry Radio, but but Age of Deceit too. Oh, another thing I wanted to mention is um, we did record, uh, for those of you who have supported us in getting Rob Skiba out here to get an interview, we were able to do that. We got to interview Rob Skiba and it was actually really cool. We, uh, again, we used the GoPro, which... Um, I don't know about the GoPro. I'm, I'm very skeptical of the GoPro now. <laughs> it would be great for me to jump out of an airplane with a GoPro, which I would never do. But uh, as far as like just filming stuff, I don't think it's the best camera. Uh, in any case, uh, we were able to get a really good shot of Rob. He spoke a lot. He sc- spoke for about an hour and 15 minutes on camera. So a lot of footage there. It was kind of scattered because I was just throwing him questions. But I think um, overall... Uh, it's going to be great. I'm actually really um, being prayerful about his opportunities with the show Seed because really it's exactly what needs to happen. You know, it needs to be a show like Seed would draw so much attention to this topic to the point where the church may not even be able to neglect it anymore. And I just think it's very important to get something like Rob's vision out there. And, and I know it costs a lot of money and I've, I've heard people just bash him because of some of his theology and things like that. And I certainly don't agree with all of his theology, but it doesn't matter. I, I, there are plenty that we do agree on that we can fellowship and, and, 
uh, you know, that's something, well, okay, I'm not going to go into that rabbit trail right now, but um, <laughs> I, I think it's important to let Rob explain in the film, in Age of Deceit 2, why he, you know, he would want to do something like Seed, because he's been working on this thing for a while, and, you know, hopefully, you know, if God wills, uh, somebody that will watch uh, Age of Deceit 2 will recognize Rob's vision and um, come help in whatever way they can. So, you know, just looking forward to all of this and putting it together. So without further ado, I guess I'll play my little rant that I had for about an hour and 10 minutes. Again, the video will be up in a couple days, so you can watch some of the uh, the visuals that went along with my uh, rambling. Um, it was good. It, it was, again, it was very nerve wracking and I was actually, it was funny. I was working on the PowerPoint literally until I got up there um, because I decided at the last minute to play a clip from the digital series H plus episode one uh, where, you know, obviously it goes through all the news agencies. It's all mock, but all the news news agencies that talk about the new chip and blah 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 and and then it goes into uh, the couple that are you know they're driving through the the uh, parking structure because they're on a vacation or something and and uh, you know just <laughs> just the kinds of social and even marital issues that may come up with uh, implant chips of that nature so anyway I'm going to just step aside so that uh, I can play this uh, audio. And if anyone is listening that is from Hosanna Chapel, big thanks to Hosanna Chapel. They were great. Sound guy Nate was amazing. Uh, just being a sound guy and, you know, as a sound tech myself, um, I just know sometimes it's challenging to meet the needs of the, the people that are there. But he did a great job. I mean, I was just very impressed at his willingness to jump on everything and, uh, and, you know, it, it's just coming from a tech, it's, it, it hopefully means a lot because I've had moments as a tech, just, you know, willing to admit here, <laughs> confession moment here. I've had moments where, you know, the people are becoming a little too demanding, you know, and then they throw a little attitude your way and you just kind of, you bite your lip and you, and you go through and you do what they ask you to do, but it's not easy, you know? And um, so anyway, Nate was great. And thank you for Hosanna Chapel for hosting this event. And again, without further ado, I'm just going to go ahead and play this clip. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you, Doug. Um, Yeah, so I made the film Age of Deceit, Fallen Angels and the New World Order. And... The reason why I was able to put that together was because there were so many great researchers doing most of the dirty work. I was just trying to collect it all and bring it all together and put it in one place. Um, And so today I'm going to touch on some of the things that I looked at in that film, but also um, I'm working on part two, and so I'm going to try to tie it all kind of together. And uh, this was my first ever PowerPoint, so if there's like you know, things that go wrong and, and whatnot, uh, please bear with me. But um, th- here's the cover. I basically used the, uh, I think it's called the uh, Ventruvian Man. It's like the normal, the man here. And then a transhumanist and then an angel because that's really the ideal that uh, a lot of these 
fallen angels are teaching humanity. It's this idea of us becoming gods, and we're gonna go through that. But today's talk is called Rise of the Beast Image. I'm looking at the role of science and technology in the unfolding of Bible prophecy. And I'll lay the groundwork and I'll tie it into how I think it's gonna uh, tie into the UFO deception uh, in the end times. I wanna start here. Uh, what is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? Um, you know, I started off this conference with, by saying that 1 Peter 3.15 always have an answer for the hope that we have. And we know that, but we don't really actually normally talk about that hope. And the world, when the world talks about hope, they're talking about uh, th things in terms of uncertainty. You know, we say things like, or I've said things like, I don't know what I'm doing up here, but I hope it goes well, you know, things like that. But the hope we have in Jesus is a little bit different. And I think um, there's lots of places in the Bible that talk about it. I think Romans 8 is a, is a great place. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. And this weekend we looked at, uh, through Doug's work, how this is a real hope. This is not just this pie in the sky idea hope. This is a real hope, a physical hope. But there's another kind of hope, and it's the hope in man. I'm gonna start here with uh, this guy named Manly P. Hall. He is an occultist. He's touted as one of the greatest occult authors in the 20th century. Um, he wrote a book, he wrote many books. One of them was called The Secret Destiny of America. And in it, he says this. He says, the supreme human purpose is the perfection of man. This must come first, and when this end has been achieved, all good things will inevitably follow. And we know that in Hebrews 4.4, 4, it talks about friendship with the world as enmity with God. Uh, Psalm 115 talks about idols being the works of human hands. And this should really cause us to ask, okay, the supreme human purpose, what does that even mean? What, what does it mean to be human? How do we measure perfection? All these ideas should really per, uh, percolate in our minds as we look at quotes like this. And really, it can be summed up very nicely in what's called the Luciferian philosophy. Um, this is a quote, I'm gonna quote uh, a man by the name of Bill Cooper. He was a researcher that was shot and killed just a couple months after the 9-11 attacks. Um, he was a Christian. Uh, he saw a UFO when he was in the military and he went on a quest to find out what's really going on and he did a really good job of uncovering a lot of that. Um, I don't agree with all of his theology. I don't agree with all of his exegesis and how he handled the Bible in certain passages, but we, none of us do. Um, but he said this, I think it summed it up really well in a talk he did in Lansing, Michigan, and I uh, use a clip of this in the film, but I'm just gonna read it. He says, here's the way they look at it. Here's their metaphor for the end of innocence. Adam and Eve were held prisoner in the Garden of Eden by an unjust, cruel, and vindictive God until Lucifer, through his agent Satan, set man free from the garden by giving them the gift of intellect. Through the use of intellect, man will conquer the earth, will conquer nature, and will himself become God. It's taught in every Masonic temple in this land, every secret brotherhood, every secret society, every mystical temple, every occult organization teaches the Luciferian philosophy. I think that just sums it up really well. 
So I asked the question, how is the Luciferian philosophy the driving force behind creating this global society? And I started looking at it, and I mean, each one of these, there's researchers that look into each one of these topics, and I'm just going through this very quickly to try to connect the dots for you. But in the world of economics, I mean, I think most of us have seen that there's something going on in the world of our economy that's just not right. Um, if you look at the Federal Reserve, uh, Edward G. Griffin's book, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, looks at how the Federal Reserve was created. And it really just reveals how all of our economic system uh, comes from this same philosophy. The political. Um, interestingly, the word politic is uh, in, in, or just in the definition, means shrewd or prudent in practical matters. And if you look at Genesis 3, right at the beginning, when the serpent says he was craftier than the other animals and creatures, it's the Hebrew word arum, which means shrewd. So, interesting. Uh, the military, um, this is not a knock on military men and women. I have friends uh, and that I highly respect and, and even some family that are in the military that, I, that you know, I, I, this is not a knock on them. But when you look at things like DARPA, when you look at gun control, that, that's a big thing right now, you know that this has something to do with gathering the military and making them come together to enforce something. Then you have the social aspects. And really, when we look at society and how we interact, it's very prevalent. You look at, especially now with social media, uh, it's become very obvious that we have become very narcissistic. We have become very me-centered. We have our iPhones and our iPads. It's all me, me, me. And the way we communicate socially has become that as well. It's like, look at me on this, you know, my Facebook page, and this is me and my picture and my baby and all this stuff. And so I think it's there as well. Um, the education system. Uh, if you look at, if you trace some of the, it all ties together here, but if you look at some of the education and how it's being funded, you look at the Jesuit order and how they've really funded the education system. And, and uh, interestingly, Alice Bailey, who is also an occult author, who I quote quite a bit in the film, uh, she says in a book called Education for the New Age, actually not her, it's her ascended master, uh, Dejua Kool, um, through Alice Bailey, because she channeled this entity, says, world citizenship should be the goal of uh, the enlightened with a world federation and a world brain. So in other places, she has also said that uh, when the one world system comes together, every single country and culture will sustain their culture, except one thing, education. So it's definitely there. Um, in the scientific realm, we have, obviously, global warming, and this is where we're going to start digging in, in in the talk today, so I won't get too deep into it. Um, but, you know, we have things like HARP and all sorts of stuff. I don't want to get into each detail because I can be up here forever with, with each one of these. Uh, and then, finally, technology. And it's interesting that when you, when you think about all the occult rituals that have happened, and all the blood sacrifices that LA has talked about, and you look at uh, modern day 21st century technology, we really have all the ingredients to create a global society. But there's one underlying thing that all of these points to, and that is the spiritual element. And I think most of us here understand that we are definitely in a spiritual war. This is not uh, a battle of flesh and blood, this is a spiritual war. And um, Satan has used his lies to deceive mankind for his agenda. And this is a really important point that I try to get across often because 
you know, oftentimes you read or you, you look at researchers who demonize a certain group, right? Like these guys are evil or, or, or whatever. The difficulty is that they're human. We're not, my goal is not to demonize the group, but actually what's inspiring these people? And I think the deception runs deep. And I think, yes, we are all being deceived, but more than that, those elites, they're the ones that are most deceived. And so, you know, it, it really hopefully puts a different spin on some of these things because it's so easy to just say, oh, they're evil and point your finger at them. Um, this whole idea of a Luciferian philosophy ties right back to the primal lie. And we've heard about this a little bit this weekend, but I'm gonna dig in a little deeper. Genesis 3.2, it says, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So as Doug mentioned earlier in the talk as well, I believe there was a, a, a nice symbiotic relationship between man, nature, and God. And the way God created everything, it was all good. Uh, we read in Genesis 1 on the sixth day that everything was good, everything was together, animals were hanging out together with you know, men, and, and we had food for plants, uh, or food from plants, and, and everything else. So when the serpent came and said this, um, I believe it was really the root of man-centeredness, the Luciferian philosophy. So I'm gonna go through each one of these points that uh, Lucifer made and sort of derive what we're uh, looking at here. The first part is, you will surely not die. And when you look at uh, Eve, Eve understood that she was an immortal being, she was created immortal. But when the serpent, or, or when God said, uh, you will die if you eat of this tree, and the serpent came and said, no, you surely won't die, she understood that it was sustained immortality. She thought, oh, my immortality is not in jeopardy. Um, but we know that Adam died at 930 years old. So obviously this was a, a deception. But really um, what I think is interesting to point out here is that this is really also a genetic issue that, again, Doug brings up. Um, Adam dying at 930 years old, if you look at us now and compare what the difference is, the central difference between someone who lives for 930 years and us, which is you know, lucky if we get to 100 or so, it's a genetic thing. It's the death code. It's in the, in the DNA and how fast we decay. So really, you know, I've heard people say there's no genetics in the Bible, and I disagree. I think it's there if you really look for it. The next part of it, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And this is, a, this is kind of like the hook. This is really talking about esoteric information. This has been the staple of secret societies, the mystery religions. Um, even when you look at, and I, you know, I'm kind of hesitant to say this, but even within the church with different denominations, this is really what's going on. People saying, ooh, we have, we have secret knowledge that all these other guys just don't get, so come with us. And it's this idea of building walls. But it's fascinating when you look at uh, ancient art. Um, the idea of eyes being opened is, is really prevalent. Uh, this is a sculpture of Inanna, which is a sun goddess. Sometimes she's referred to as the moon goddess. In Akkadian, she is known as Ishtar, which is where we get the name Easter. Uh, she's also known as Belili, the wife of Baal. And um, David Flynn has pointed out she's the goddess of the dog star Sirius and also Europa, the queen of Sidonia, where we get the name Europe. Um, and here's another one. And oh, again, notice the eyes of the first one, I'm sorry. Um, they depicted these, these people with huge eyes and they used to put jewels in them to signify this idea that 
eyes being open, secret knowledge. Uh, the second one is a Sumerian statuette from the Temple of Bu, and um, I believe this person looks kind of like Nimrod, but again, the depiction of having huge eyes, that they know something, they are special in some way. And this is the big one, you will be like God. And really, this is talking about apotheosis, which is to deify or to be made divine. I'm going to go through some belief systems very quickly and show how this is part of every, almost every world religion. You have the New Age, this idea of ascension, Christ consciousness. We talk about, or they talk about, connecting with their higher self and becoming like God. In Buddhism, you have nirvana, which is, of course, stripping yourself of desires and becoming a higher self, which I never got because isn't that a desire to strip all yourself of desires? It just didn't make sense to me. Then you have um, Hinduism, which promotes pantheism. You know, everything is God. You know, this podium is God, therefore I am God. Then you have ancient Egypt and mummification, this idea that you have to perform certain rituals, you have to handle uh, these uh, pharaohs with certain care so they can ascend and go to the next world. Celtic and Chinese pantheons are filled with former humans that became gods. Gnosticism, I chose Star Wars and the Matrix because they really uh, show this idea of apotheosis really well. Uh, obviously, Star Wars, when Luke goes and I think Empire Strikes Back, Luke battles himself, right? And he emerges a, a new, you know, better Luke. And the Matrix, you know, he's trying to overcome certain things and then he starts seeing everything in ones and zeros and he can dodge bullets and all that stuff. Then you have Freemasonry. Um, I chose to put Apotheosis of George Washington just because it's the best example. It's the clearest example that I hope uh, people will recognize. And I have a picture here of the Apotheosis of George Washington that is in the rotunda uh, in our nation's capital. Um, I just think it's interesting that Christians, you know, don't really realize that right there in our nation's capital is a painting of our first president being deified into a god. So do we live in a Christian nation? Uh, I think we live in a nation with Christians, but I don't know if we live in a Christian nation. <laughs> then we have transhumanism, this idea of human immortality, the singularity, and we'll dig into that a little bit more later. Uh, and we also have Mormonism and the idea of exaltation that you know, we're going to become gods and we will rule over planets. And I chose Mormonism after transhumanism because uh, Mormonisms have, or Mormons have really, or a certain sector of Mormons, have really picked up on this idea of transhumanism. They, there's even a movement of Mormon transhumanists who are trying to sort of merge the two ideas together. Um, but there is one more, there's obviously a lot more, but there's one more that I wanted to tackle, and that's Christianity. And when you look at some of these verses in a vacuum, it does seem like it's describing apotheosis. You have Ephesians 4.24, and it says, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 1 Corinthians 15.53, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body, immortal body or mortal body immortality. And in a vacuum, it's, you can see how some of these New Agers would read this and go, oh, it's talking about their version of apotheosis. But I think God clearly tells us that he's the one that's gonna deliver us. 
Second Peter 1, 3 through 9 says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his great and precious promise so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So really, I think the biggest difference between the follower of Christ and everybody else in this idea of apotheosis is that God is the one that's going to deliver. And I think most of us here understand that, but it's difficult sometimes because, you know, you get attacked with different views and they'll quote scripture and you think, well, maybe it is that. But I think ultimately, if we keep that in mind, it's very easy. Um, and then we have knowing good and evil. And the first thing I wanted to point out here is that in Genesis 2.9, it says, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so the tree itself wasn't evil. It was God's command, breaking God's commandment that caused the fall. And there's a part of me that believes that um, perhaps there was a certain point in time, of course, God's plan is God's plan, but uh, in maybe another way we might have played out, uh, we were meant to eventually eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil when we were more mature and able to handle it, and maybe perhaps that is why God kept us from eating it immediately. Um, that's just a, a theory. Um, but really, I think what this is really pointing at is the rationalization of evil. We're very good at rationalizing things that are not good for us or, or others. Very good at it. And um, here's a couple quotes that sort of exemplifies that. Uh, in an article by Psychology Today called Six Reasons Why Politicians Believe They Can Lie, uh, PhD Jim Taylor said this, Politicians lie because the cost-benefit ratio for lying is in their favor. And you look at it, and it's like, that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, we do that. We do that all the time. Um, and then another study, kids learn to lie as young as two years old. Uh, a couple psychologists did a bunch of studies, and one of the psychologists who did the study said this. If your child lies, it's not a sign that your child will develop into a sociopath or a pathological liar. However, it is an indication that they have reached a normal developmental stage. So according to the science, scientists and psychologists, it's normal for kids to lie. In fact, if they can lie, they're developing in a healthy manner. So just to sum it up here, the primal lie, you won't die, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, and you will know good and evil. And this should really, again, help us enhance our understanding of the resurrection as well. And we'll hopefully get to that. Um, but I think this, the reason why uh, I'm, I want to look at technology and science is because this is where I think technology starts. I think the fall caused the first use of technology in the Bible. We read in Genesis 3-7, it says, then the eyes of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So, you know, usually we don't think of this as technology, but when you look at the word technology, and the definition is just a branch of knowledge that deals with the creation and use of, uh, use of technical means and their interrelation with life, society, and the environment. It comes from the Greek word technologia, and if you break that word down, it just means shape or make. Techno means craft, art, skill, method, system, and logia, discourse, doctrine, or theory. So really, they were using craft of sewing 
So uh, with the theory that they can cover their nakedness. So really, again, it's kind of this idea of a use of technology. But again, later in Genesis 3, we read that, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So rather than God condemning them, God pours out his grace and he says, I'm gonna upgrade your fig leaves to actual coats of skin. And I think this is sort of a microcosm of the gospel, again, saying that God's the one that's gonna deliver us, not you. And the primal lie leads to the birth of civilization. I'm gonna look at Cain here for a little bit. Um, most of us know the story of Cain and Abel, uh, but we really don't talk too much about what happens afterwards. In Genesis 4, 11 through 12, it says, now you, Cain, are under a curse and driven from the ground. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And interestingly, Cain's name means maker or fabricator, literally a smith. And God set the basic agriculture in place right from the beginning when he, you know, when Abel was born, he was the keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. But after the fall, um, God curses the ground. He tells Adam, curses the ground, in pain you shall eat of it. So Cain was in a predicament because he's already cursed uh, under the curse of Adam of not, you know, having to work for, to grow food on the ground. Well, now he can't grow any food on the ground. And so I think this uh, leads to some very interesting things. And when you read in Genesis 4:17, it says, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. This is not the Enoch from the Messianic line. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So wait a minute. Second generation humans are building cities? This is, to me, was like, really? That's kind of strange. How did that happen? And I think this is really the beginning of industry and urbanization. Um, I think what happened was Cain, not being able to grow anything, he had to have other people grow stuff for him. So he started to barter. He had to, you know, work with other people. And this is the beginning of civilization. Uh, Josephus said this, he also introduced a change in the way of simplicity wherein men lived before and was the author of measures and weights. He changed the world into cunning craftiness. He first of all set boundaries about lands. He built a city and fortified it with walls and he compelled his family to come together to it and called this, that city Enoch after the name of his eldest son Enoch. And again, it's this very man-centered idea that you know, God said, I'm gonna be a restless wanderer. I'm not gonna listen to God. I'm gonna stake my, my land here. This is my land, I'm not gonna wander. And uh, here you go, and I'm gonna name it after my son. I'm not gonna honor God with any of this. But this made me ask the question, did Cain get help from someone? And it's interesting when we read in Luke 4, when the devil tempted uh, Jesus, um, he took him up to, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, to you I'll give this authority and glory if, uh, if you will worship me. And so I believe Cain is the first Satan worshiper. And if you look at Cain in the occult, um, it's very interesting. He is called the forgotten father who gave a few chosen men secrets, uh, forbidden wisdom. And um, again, it's this idea of having sacred knowledge and sharing it with only a few and using that as leverage to get what you want and, uh, or in this case, we'll get what Cain wants. And there's various, uh, there's lots of different names for this idea. Uh, and I chose the Hermetic Doctrine because Hermeticism has really been um, a big occult 
uh, philosophy that is the same as the Luciferian philosophy, but it always has some kind of artifact involved with it. You have the Philosopher's Stone, which is huge in alchemy. Um, you have Lapsit Exilis, or the Holy Grail, which is interesting, I'll show you in a moment. And then you have the Benben Stone, which is again the stone that fell from heaven, where the gods were born. And there's a, a picture of the Benman stone, or a, a replica of the Benman stone. And this idea was that uh, this pyramid shape would sit on top of a podium, which was now we call the obelisk. Um, and then we also have the emerald tablets, where Toth, the, I guess an Atlantean, and we'll get to that later as well, uh, was the one who gave knowledge to the Atlanteans, and then again to the Egyptians. Um, but as I was putting this together, it was interesting, this week we had, uh, we have a new pope. So I um, included the Pope's seal. I don't know if we've all, or you guys have all seen this, but here's the new seal, or the seal of the Pope. Now, I'm sure you guys immediately see the top there. It's a hat, right? Um, that, to me, looks kind of like a UFO, okay? May or may not be, who knows? <laughs> um, but it's interesting that they have this, you know, the two tassels at the beginning going around, and it has the, uh, it has the, the knots there. And in Egyptian lore, those knots of ropes represent eternal life. And then it goes down, and in my opinion, it ha I might have something to do with bloodlines there, but I, I don't know. I'm sure there's lots of uh, hidden meanings here that we don't know all about. But that little double cross there right under the hat um, is called the Cross of Lorraine, and it was first carried by the Crusades and the original Knights of Templar. Um, but there's a little bit of a deeper meaning when it comes to the occult. Uh, Mark Amaru Pinkham, in a book called Guardians of the Holy Grail, uh, said that it represents brimstone and lead, both of which are affiliated with Lucifer. So isn't it great that our new pope has symbolism that has a connection with Lucifer? Um, there's also uh, a group called the Ordo Lapsit Exilis, who are an invisible college or a secret society, underground society, dedicated to the recovery of the stone that fell from heaven, and this idea of seeking the Holy Grail. So uh, again, back to Hermeticism, um, one of the, the chief doctrines or ideas in Hermeticism is something that's called Prisca Theologica. And really what it is, is uh, a single theology that coexists between all religions. And ultimately, I think what we're doing in science when trying looking for uh, while we're looking for this unified theory, I think they're really looking for the Prisca Theologica, this idea of, of one thing that unifies everything, all the understanding. But it's interesting because there's three parts to Hermeticism. There's theurgy, which is basically divination, the science or art of divine works. Um, in black magic, theurgy is in having communication with uh, demons. And with divine magic, it's having... Um, relationship or contact with angelic spirits. Um, but it's really simple. In 1 John 4, it tells us, don't believe every spirit, but test them to see if they are of God. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, the next part is astrology. And it's looking at the, <clears throat> the operations of uh, the moon and the planets, obviously, and um, somehow gaining wisdom about your life, personally or, or otherwise. And thirdly, there's alchemy. And usually we think of alchemy as, you know, wizards in medieval times, like trying to come up with gold and silver. But there's a, a deeper spiritual aspect to this, um, looking at 
this idea that you can create an elixir or some kind of substance that will uh, cause or help you have eternal life. And in fact, there are some people that have commented on the philosopher's stone and things of that nature who say that God was the one that gave Adam this knowledge of, you know, alchemy. And through it, that's why he was able to live for so long. And, you know, through time, that knowledge was lost and, dis, you know, dispersed and changed. And that's why we don't live as long. I don't believe that to be true, but that's what they think. So getting back to Cain, um, we're going to go through some of the genealogies of Cain real quickly here. Uh, in Genesis 4, we have Cain, he has Enoch, and Enoch means dedicated, which I find interesting that both the Enoch here and the Enoch that was taken to heaven uh, from the Messianic line, it means dedicated. Um, then we have Erad, and Ir, the I-R of Erad, means city. Oh, I'm sorry. We have Mehujael, which means blot thee out that Yah is God. Isn't that nice? Then you have Methusael, or yeah, Methusael, which means they died inquiring, they died who are of God. And the book of Enoch and the book of Jubilees tells us that the watchers came down during the days of Jared. And when you look at uh, the generations, Jared was the sixth from Adam. Meth uh, Methusael was also the sixth from Adam. So they died inquiring and they died who are of God. It's very interesting that we talk about the sons of God in Genesis 6 there. Then we have Lamech, who uh, was the first person to uh, practice bigamy. Um, but it's interesting that through the two wives, we see that uh, we see where the, the mindset of man was. Adah means pleasure, ornament, he adorned. And Zillah means shadiness, he wasted. It's kind of this idea that we, were, we began to really objectify ourselves and objectify um, women, I think, for Lamech. And Lamech, uh, through these uh, two wives of Lamech, um, Adah had Jabal and Jubal, um, and Zilah had Tubal-Cain. And they are obviously known to be the ones who, uh, Jabal, tent-making and livestock, Jubal, musical instruments and the arts, and Tubal-Cain um, being the one that really started to use uh, tools and weaponry. So it's interesting when we look at uh, Enoch, the book of Enoch, in chapter 8, it says this, um, and Azazel, which is a fallen angel, taught men to make swords and daggers and shields and breastplates. And he showed them the things after these and the art of making them, bracelets and ornaments and the art of making up the eyes and of beautifying the eyelids and the most precious stones and all kinds of colored dyes. And the world was changed and there was a great impiety and much fornication and they went astray and all their ways became corrupt. A Miserach taught all those who cast spells and cut roots. Armoros, the release of spells, and Baraquiel, astrologers, and Kokabiel, portents, and Tamiel taught astrology, and Azradel taught the path of the moon and the destruction of men. Uh, and at the destruction of men, they cried out, and their voices reached heaven. So I find it interesting that these fallen angels have names in the book of Enoch. So um, we've obviously looked a lot at this idea of as in the days of Noah, and we have mentioned here that the fallen angels came in the days of Jared. So when we look at the genealogy in Genesis 5, in this chart, it's fascinating to see how, uh, how much the days of Jared and the days of Enoch overlap. And um, 
I just find it fascinating that Adam was around through all this stuff, uh, or at least most of it, um, and, and just to see the, the, how long each person lived. And of course, we come to Genesis 6, and I'll go through that. Well, we all kind of went through that this week. It's where the Nephilim are born. And so just a real quick summary so far. A proper balance between man, creation, and God existed prior to the fall. After the fall, man began using his own abilities to make up for the loss of this balance. In the process, Satan and his fallen angels came to help guide humanity in the pursuit of restoration. At a certain point, some of these fallen angels took on flesh and mated with human women, leading to a near complete corruption of the human race, Nephilim, resulting in the flood. The philosophy that drove uh, the attempt to destroy the messianic line prior to the flood was and will continue to be the philosophy that will result in the second coming of Jesus. And, you know, Satan is really quite clever. He was, he's been able to orchestrate this before, and I believe he's doing the same thing now. I don't think he's doing anything different. Um, he's really, again, deceiving us to thread our own noose. And um, let's move on. So going from that point, what is the role of science and technology in Bible prophecy? There's a lot of commentary on this, right? Especially in the last few decades with chips and, and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, we often think that we are really ahead on technology, that we are just the, you know, the most amazing generation because we have iPads or iPhones and stuff like that. But there's a problem if, when we look at the Bible because the Word of God tells us in Ecclesiastes 1, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So if we go back to the hope of man, and our good friend Manly P. Hall, in another book that he called The Lost Keys of Freemasonry, he said this, Masonry is a university teaching the liberal arts and sciences of the soul to all. It is a shadow of the great Atlantean mystery school which stood all its splendor in the ancient city of the Golden Gates. When the Mason learns that the key to the warrior on the block is the proper application of the dynamo of living power, he has learned the mystery of his craft. The seething energies of Lucifer are in his hands. And before he may step onward and upward, he must prove his ability to properly apply energy. That's nice. But it's interesting that he points out Atlantis, the Atlantean mystery school. So what are they really talking about when the cultists really talk about this idea of bringing Atlantis back? Is the antediluvian world or pre-flood world the lost empire of Atlantis? Or did Atlantis exist at some point in the pre-flood world? Um, perhaps the city that Cain built called Enoch was Atlantis. I don't know. I'm not sure. But it's an interesting thing to ponder. Um, the idea here is, though, that uh, there was corruption. But we'll get into that. Atlantis... Um, when we look at, again, uh, what we just went through, Cain builds a rising civilization in Genesis 4. The sons of God come, mate with daughters of men, uh, then the Nephilim are born, and then finally it causes the flood. And so this is really built on the work of, of Doug. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways, uh, or their way on the earth. And when we look at the word corrupt, uh, it's Shachath, I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation there. It means destroy, but it can also mean blemished animal, harm, polluted, ruined, or spoiled. 
And so this is fascinating because when we look at as the days of Noah were, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man, is what happened in the days of Noah really happening today? We've heard this over and over again this weekend, but really how is it happening? Well, there's this uh, document that I read about in elementary school, interestingly, called The New Atlantis. It was published in 1627 by Sir Francis Bacon. Um, Bacon was a Rosicrucian and a Freemason, and it's uh, well known that he was part of the highest echelons of the intellectual circles of his day. And he's the founder of empiricism, and so he's kind of the forefather of the scientific method, right? If you ever speak to atheists, they'll tell you, like, the scientific method is, you know, basically God. They won't say that, but that's kind of what they're thinking. And it's sort of the beginning of this materialistic worldview that, that has sprung up uh, right now. And um, when you read this, this book, it's, it's a fiction, but it's really the blueprint for the new world, and it's, it's this blueprint for a utopian society where science is championed. And interestingly enough, there's a rumor, and I'm not sure if I can vet this, I don't know how I would be able to vet this, but um, there's a rumor that Thomas Jefferson was the last person to actually read the original ending of The New Atlantis, but they put it away because it gave away too much information. But what we do get from what we do have now is that uh, Francis Bacon in 1627 describes skyscrapers, spas, hospitals, zoos, pharmacies, concert halls and stadiums, machines that do work, and the science lab. But there's a really fascinating passage that I want to read to you. It's kind of long, but, but I, think, I think you'll get the point of what's going on here. It says, we also have parks and enclosures of all sorts of beasts and birds, likewise for dissection and trials, that thereby may take light what may be wrought upon the body of man, wherein we find many strange effects as continuing life in them, resuscitating of some that seem dead in appearance and the like. We try also all poisons and other medicines upon them, as well, uh, as well of chirurgy as physic, which just means surgery as medicine. By art, likewise, we make them greater or smaller than their kind is. Also, we make them differ in color, shape, activity, many ways. We find means to make commixtures and copulations of diverse kinds. We have produced many new kinds. We make a number of kinds of serpents, worms, flies, fishes of putrefaction, whereof, whereof some are advanced to be perfect creatures. Neither do we do this by chance, but we know beforehand of what matter and commixture, what kind of those creatures will arise. I don't know about you, but this sounds like it's talking about the corruption of flesh. And it's interesting that, you know, just a year and a half ago, I think I was in Branson, and a group of us that, um, you know, look into these kinds of things were, were there. And an article came out in the Daily Mail, I think Doug alluded to it in his talk. He's stealing my thunder. Um, Here's a quote from the article. Scientists have created more than 150 human-animal hybrid embryos in British laboratories. The hybrids have been produced secret, uh, secretively over the past three years. The revelation comes just a day after a committee of scientists warned of a nightmare Planet of the Apes scenario in which work on human-animal creation goes too far. Figures show that 155 admixed embryos containing both human and animal genetic material have been created since the introduction of a 2008 Human Fertilization Embryology Act. This legalized the creation of a variety of hybrids, including an animal egg fertilized by a human sperm, a cybrid, in which a human nucleus is implanted into an animal cell, and chimeras, in which human cells are mixed with animal embryos. So this is happening. This is public. So imagine what's going on 
what we don't know about in the underground and black, uh, the, the sciences underground. So really, we live in a scientific dictatorship. And this is sort of the culmination, I think, this, this vision that Francis Bacon had in 1627, we're living right now. And um, Bertrand Russell, who is a, an early 19th century philosopher, said this, the scientific rulers will provide one kind of education for ordinary men and women, and another for those who are to become holders of scientific power. Ordinary men and women will be expected to be docile, industrious, punctual, thoughtless, and contented. And it's kind of an arrogant statement, but at the same time, you look around, it's kind of true. You know, you have a lot, a lot of people who are in the sciences who are very, I think LA used the term, uh, what was it they used, uh, fascism, scientific fascism. It's, it's, that's what it is. This is the philosophy that comes from that. And so really what's going on behind all this is the spiritual corruption, and the spiritual corruption leads to the physical corruption. And here's where we get into transhumanism. Transhumanism, uh, according to ASU, at the Study for the Center of Religion and Conflict, ASU being Arizona State University, is this. Transhumanism articulates a vision about the possibility of attaining happiness in this life. The very use of advanced technologies, according to transhumanists, will liberate humanity, both collectively and individually, from many ills. Transhumanists have given this pursuit a strict materialistic interpretation. The combination of neuroscience and genetics now promises to alleviate not only debilitating mental illnesses, but also temporary sadness and occasional despair. And it's interesting because when you start looking at some of the things that a lot of these uh, people that are pushing this idea talk about, um, it's, it's appalling. I mean, you read articles about, hey, you know, we found the center point in the brain where you feel sadness. So let's just suppress that. Let's go ahead and just get rid of that part of the brain and we'll be happy all the time. I don't know, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, the Institute for Ethics in Emerging Technologies, um, it's IEET.org. -E I suggest you guys go there just to keep a pulse on what's going on. I'm just gonna list some of the, uh, the, the headlines of some of these articles. This wireless brain implant can make telekinesis a reality. That's nice. Earth 2050, the end of death, advanced robots, flying cars, enhanced brains, developing space. Get ready for the risks of genetic testing. Beyond humanism, becoming cyborgs through post-humanism. Scientists enhance intelligence of mice with human brain cells. So Mighty Mouse is a reality now. <laughs> How will religious institutions deal with technological singularity? That one really caught my attention. Um, here's a quote from the article. I've wondered just how well religious institutions might rebound in the face of such technologies as mind uploading and radical life extending technology, and the prospect that one may, one may eventually need not necessarily worry about any form of the metaphysical afterlife scenarios that many religions trade in. Because really, if one may upload oneself, then Z, I'll get to that meaning of Z in a moment, needn't bother contemplating an eternity standing on streets of gold singing praises to some almighty or another or any other possible afterlife. It's interesting because the, the, they talk about this idea of the metaphysical afterlife, but because they're, they're tied down to the materialistic side, they don't see anything spiritual. But really, they're treading in some very dangerous territory when it comes to spirituality. The word Z there, I wasn't sure what that was. I looked it up. It's a, <laughs> boy. Um, 
Z and Zim is the counterpart, is a new word that is used to be a gender-neutral way to say he or she. So when you guys hear Z went to the bathroom or something, then you know what that means. Or maybe not, maybe it just confuses us more. Daniel 2.43 says this, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, uh, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Uh, when I first saw this verse through some of the researchers like Chuck Missler and, and others, um, it really struck me because, boy, what are we really talking about here? There are commentaries and, and different renderings of them talking about, oh, it's just the royalty mixing with the, the common folks and stuff like that. But really, I find it interesting that um, this is there because we have things called metal cells now. Um, scientists trying to create artificial life generally work under the assumption that life must be carbon-based. But what if a living thing could be made from another element? One British researcher may have proven that theory, potentially rewriting the book of life. Lee Cronin of the University of Glasgow have, uh, has created lifelike cells from metal, a feat few believed feasible. The discovery opens the door to the possibility that there may be life forms in the universe not based on carbon. So this is where it starts to sort of tie into this ET thing, that when they show up, they may not be carbon-based, and it will be okay because we understand that metal-based life forms can exist. So it's interesting that God gave us this vision of iron mixing with clay. So what do we expect to see in the near future? Well, there was a conference called Global Future 2045 Congress. Back last year, it was held in Moscow, Russia. I think this, these kind of ideas are gonna hit really, really hard in the United States very soon because in June of this year, this conference is gonna be held in New York. And I think there's gonna be a lot of buzz coming around about this. I have several quotes here of uh, some of these brilliant minds um, and where they think the world is headed. Um, the first one, Sergei Kurchevsky, a PhD in tests cosmonaut, he says this, humans must change. If we want to survive on Earth, much less settle beyond our planet, we will have to become different. In what way? We will have to develop the techniques, the technology, perhaps to transplant our identity to another platform. We must extend human life because it is in fact disgusting, excuse me, embarrassing and unfair to live for only 70 to 80 years or even less. When there are technologies available that allow you to extend the lifespan to 200 to, or 300 years old. Now, I, I find this interesting. I feel like he sort of spilled the beans when he wasn't supposed to, that there are technologies that can make us live 200 to 300 years old now, that they already exist. Here's another one. Now, one concept that is useful, I think, in thinking about long-term futures for humanity is the notion of, a, of the single tongue, which should be a world order, where at the highest level of organization, there is only one decision-making entity. Now, that decision-making entity could be uh, any of a wide range of certain structures. It could be the world democratic government. It could be a dictator. It could be a super intelligent machine. But the unifying feature would be that they'll all have the ability to solve global coordination problems. For example, to avoid arms race or to solve these global common problems, like when we have different countries spearing out pollutants into the atmosphere or overfishing the oceans. Now, all these kinds of coordination problems that arise from the lack of a single decision-making entity on the top. I just find it fascinating that these scientists are calling for like this global order and like this one mind entity to rule, rule everything. And here's more. I mean, this play, if you go to this website, it's like a hub for all these quotes. It's great. 
Firstly, we can make a few general uh, philosophical propositions. Any progressive phenomenon in evolution cannot be progressive forever, as leaders in evolution replace each other. Uh, replace each other. In this sense, science is a typical progressive phenomenon. It arose in response to certain crises and served to overcome them. So, science is this quality uh, in this quality as the basis of the formation of the vector of the development of human civilization. Oh, cannot be a leader forever. From this, it follows that a change in leadership will take place. And another leader must come to replace science, a leader about which we do not yet know anything about. Well, I would argue that the Christian knows quite a bit about him. Here's another one. Uh, we have had many brilliant ideas and innovations presented at the Moscow Congress of Global Futures 2045. These innovations are very exciting and very important, but the big question is, how do we link them how do we promote them? How do we popularize them? In such a fashion that we create a new world consciousness, a new world civilization, and what my friend David Hook calls global enlightenment. So again, they're all on the same page, and it's, it's just very strange and fascinating to me that these brilliant minds are really going there. And it's, I, again, I believe it's a spiritual deception that these guys are falling for. I'm gonna go through real quickly the top five scientific discoveries in the year 2012 as according to Wired.com. And I'm only gonna really look into one deeply, but number one was the Higgs boson found at the Large Hadron Collider, the God particle, which is interesting because when they asked the scientists, so what did you find? They said, well, the God particle, but we have to do more tests because we need to find out what it's doing. Curiosity landing on Mars, interesting. Uh, I think that, again, they're trying to sort of not put all their eggs in one basket. They're trying to make sure that it comes from all areas. And again, um, I think it's the foundation, the platform for the great deception that we'll get to in a second. The rise in variance. This has to do with hereditary genetics. I looked into it a little bit. I wasn't quite sure what it all meant. But here's a quote from the article that sort of tells us what's really going on. It says, rise of variance, potentially troubling news for human population health. But there's a bright side too. The sheer accumulation of new genetic variants means that humans are more evolvable than ever. So just putting in the people's minds that science is telling us, hey, we're ready to evolve. Genome, sequen genome sequencing for fetuses. Uh, this is uh, catching potentially fatal conditions early and also determining physical and psychological makeup of the child. Now, th these are topics that have a lot to do with ethics, but I believe this, these are the types of things we're gonna start facing as we move along here, um, unless the Lord returns. Uh, our children, our children's children, they're gonna be faced with the choice to make designer babies. You know, if uh, a child is born with a syndrome or something wrong with them, uh, they'll have the ability to go in there and fix them, and the question is, would you? And that's a that's a very legitimate question. That's a very hard thing to answer. Quantum teleportation distance record broken. And LA talked about the world grid and the internet being that, that grid. I think it's gonna be even more powerful than what we can imagine at the moment. Uh, China and Austria broke the world record for teleporting quantum particles more than 50 miles. So quantum physics is, and quantum mechanics is sort of complex, but to make it really, really basic, and I'm not a physicist, so I'm not gonna, I'm probably gonna butcher this, but basically what they do is they take two particles, and you know, they, they've done it close together, and they've done it further and further away to the point where they're doing 50 miles. They're quantumly entangled, so when they influence one, the other one immediately has the same effect. So what they're hoping for with this is that we'll be able to 
have technologies to beam particles to the satellite, which results in a quantum internet. Instead of just a few seconds late, now it's literally instantaneous because as soon as one particle changes, the other one is happening faster than the speed of light. And you know, when you think about 3D printing and, and all the information that we're getting through all the sciences, I mean, you know, beam me up, Scotty, this is really happening. I wanna just focus real quick on CERN. Um, most of us know about CERN. It's, uh, it's where they have the Large Hydron Collider. Uh, they shut it down, I think, earlier this year. They're gonna reopen it in 2015. Uh, I believe they said that they've only been running it at half capacity. So they, they wanna fix it so they can run it at full capacity, which, great, that's wonderful. But of course, it's interesting that they have the statue of Shiva, the Hindu de deity of destruction, in front of, the, uh, in front of CERN there, which, of course, is that's, that's good, you know. Um, <laughs> in January 1st, The Guardian, uh, interviewing a scientist, um, the scientist said this, what you'd expect is that as you reach the right energy, you suddenly see inside the extra dimensions, and gravity becomes big and strong instead of feeble and weak, says Parker. The, uh, the, the sudden extra pull of gravity would cause particles to scatter far more inside the machine, giving scientists a clear, signal, uh, a clear signal that extra dimensions were real. Extra dimensions may separate us from realms of space uh, we are completely oblivious to. There could be a whole universe full of galaxies and stars and civilizations and newspapers that we didn't know about, says Parker. That would be a big deal. I would think so, that would be a pretty big deal because this is where science is really leaving the materialistic worldview and they're really adopting a spirituality and they're, and they're starting to gain this idea of, I think they're starting to lean towards a pantheistic monism type of uh, religion. And there are plenty, I didn't quote any here, but there are plenty of scientists, leading biologists and, and lots of scientists that are picking up on the spirituality, actually calling for the institution to start rewriting science and breaking down some of these materialistic answers that don't answer anything, as LA showed that you know Dawkins is, is intellectually bankrupt. They're saying we need to incorporate these different elements of spirituality uh, in order to answer some of these questions. So even the materialistic sciences are starting to say this. There's a book called Technopoly by Neil Postman, and um, he, he also wrote another book. Uh, well, that's irrelevant for this, but let me get this quote because I think it's, this is a quote that really gives us a a good picture of how we should be dealing with this and what we're really dealing with now. And he says this, new technologies alter the structure of our interests, the things we think about. They alter the character of our symbols, the things we think with. They alter the nature of community, the area in which thoughts develop. For something has happened in America that is strange and dangerous, and there's only a dull and even stupid awareness of what it is, in part because it has no name. I call it technopoly. And if you go on YouTube, there's videos of these kids that are really good on the iPad. You know, they have, they're in these little, whatever they're called, I don't know what they're called, with the babies and they have the little carriage thing and they have their ball and the bells and all this stuff in their iPad and they're like, you know, playing with their iPad and they're very good with it. Um, and there's a video footage of a, a little baby who plays with the iPad, she's good with it, she can play her games, and then she goes to a magazine and she starts trying to move the pictures around on the magazine. Um, a lot of people are saying that we live in, this next generation is gonna be called Generation S, Generation Screen, because everybody is in front of a screen. And um, I don't know, I don't know if that's a good, good, thing, a good thing or bad thing. And also, we're really moving into this world of augmented reality. Uh, Google 
and of course Ray Kurzweil, who I didn't bring up in this talk, but if you guys know Ray Kurzweil is uh, the new head of engineering at Google. I think he was just named earlier this year. Uh, he's the man who's really for transhumanism. He started Singularity University. He, uh, he believes that we will be immortal by 2045. He believes we'll re uh, reverse engineer the brain by the end of this decade. Um, he also believes that he is going to resurrect his father. That is his main goal. So this is where the head of engineering at Google is. You know, that's where his mind's at. Um, but augmented reality. Um, Google has just recently done a commercial on something called the Google Glasses, I believe is what it's called. And basically, I don't know if you've seen the commercial for it, but it's a pair of glasses, but it's augmented reality. You have, you know, from the right side or my right, you have your time. It's kind of like looking at a, a, a laptop screen where you have your time. You have all your applications that you can pull up. You can tell it to take pictures or take video. Uh, you can pull up the internet. It's, it's just amazing that uh, this stuff is on the market now and you can buy it. It's like, I think it was $15,000 or something and it's coming out next year in 2014. So if you see some people walking around with stylish glasses, they may be filming you without knowing it. And there's sort of an uprise as well. People against this idea of, hey, I don't know if I wanna be just randomly filmed by somebody and not know it through their glasses. And um, there's, a, there's a series called H Plus that, was, that aired on um, YouTube. It's a series of small, uh, just you know, three to four minute segments of, of footage, or not footage, it's actually a, like a major motion type thing, but they just made it in snippets. And um, I have a clip from it here. This is actually the first episode. And I thought it did a really good job of um, showing what we're facing here, what kind of world we're gonna start living in. And um, hopefully this works here. Thank you. 
Plus. The world is in you. You're always online. You're always This is a drama, so it's gonna. I'm gonna go ahead and play part of the first episode here. Okay, so of course it's a drama, but it sort of gives us an idea of 
what kinds of things, kinds of problems we might have in our marriages and whatnot. But um, I just think it's a great sort of way to capture how this is going to be really in our face very, very soon. And one of the biggest concerns for me is how the church is going to respond to this because we don't really talk about technology. We actually embrace it. And actually, I do think there's a way to properly handle technology. I think um, a lot of churches and stuff, they use technology to worship God. I think it's a good thing. However, uh, when it comes to changing who we are from the inside, literally, physically, not just in a spiritual sense, I believe that, that this is sort of the, the, the place where we don't really think about. Um, I was having a conversation with um, a friend who is in, in outreach at the church I attend, and um, great guy, I love the guy, and brother in Christ, and he brought up the topic of stem cells, so I thought, hey, it's kind of a good entry to start talking about this. So I said, so what if they wanted to chip your brain? Would you do that? He was like, yeah, totally, awesome. And I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> he was very excited about this. So, um, you know, I think it's really important for us to be aware of what's going on because it seems that the church, and I have not been a Christian for very long, so what I've seen is sort of just the history of what I've read about in the last few decades, uh, but it seems that we are, or at least the church is sort of behind on lots of issues, and they sort of tackle issues a few decades after it's been an issue, and, and then they pat themselves on the back. And that's not a knock on the church, it's just kind of how it is. Um, so I believe it's a very important uh, discussion to have and to just be aware. And I don't have the answers to this. I don't know. I mean, I mean, is a chip in the brain the mark of the beast? I don't know, probably, maybe. But if it's going to help, because it's going to help a lot of people, obviously people who have... Uh, who are deaf, who are blind, some sort of chip, and they already have this, are helping them. They're helping them see for the first time. They're helping them hear for the first time. So again, it's a very difficult issue because on one hand, it is helping people, but on the other hand, we know where this is all headed. So what is the image of the beast? This is sort of the big question I'm trying to address. I'm not sure what it looks like. There are uh, the first commentary on the book of Revelation by Victor, Victorinus, I believe is how you pronounce it, um, he basically said that, oh, it's a statue that's going to sit in the temple, and obviously an angel is going to enter it, and it's going to make the statue speak. Maybe, but I have a feeling it's going to be something more. Um, Revelation 13, it says, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So it's just very interesting that in our modern day and where we're headed in technology, verses like this have some sort of relevance. And I, I haven't quite figured it out yet. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but um, I hope that we start thinking about these things because, you know, obviously Revelation 20 says, and, also, and I also, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hand. They come to life, uh, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it's, it's, I think it's an element that's often ignored with a lot of prophecy teachers. They, we talk a lot about the mark, we talk a lot about the beast itself, but the image we don't really talk about. And with technology and where it's headed today, 
I just have a feeling that it might have something to do with it. The role of technology. Developing technologies resulting from rapid discoveries in science is a net that is cast over the earth and will play a role in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, especially pertaining to the mark of the beast and the image of the beast. And so again, I, I don't have all the answers, but I feel like this is part of the UFO deception in this one way. If and when ETs arrive, um, there will undoubtedly, uh, undoubtedly be people who are very weary of them. I'm sure there are a population that will accept you know, what they offer, uh, but at the same time, how much more credible would these alien beings be if our leading scientists and a lot of our people in technology and sciences look at what they're offering us and they verify it. They say, oh, yes, we understand this through quantum physics. They just give us a clear answer of it. Or we understand this through our understanding of genetics. It sort of gives it credibility at a different level. Um, it, they're going to start following, you know, obviously the atheist and scientific world. They'll accept it because it matches the science. And that's something that I don't think we really think about too much. But again, it's this idea of the Prisca Theologica, this unifying theory. And I believe that's part of the deception that when these ETs come, not real ETs, these demons manifest as aliens, they're gonna have the Prisca Theologica. They're gonna have the one theory that's gonna unify everything. And the reason why we're gonna accept it is not just because it's supernatural or it's great or anything like that. Of course, that's a huge element, but I believe it's because it is going to make sense in the, the realms of science and technology. And so all I have to say is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you for sitting through that. So that was my rambling of the talk that I called Rise of the Beast Image. And, you know, since the talk, it's only been a couple days, but since the talk, I'm really, I was really thinking about this idea of the image of the beast and what could it be? What does it mean? And I started really thinking about worship and uh, what is worship, you know, and when a Christian says worship, a lot of times it's referring to worship songs, right? You know, but worship in the sense of the antithesis of worshiping God, what does that look like? You know, what does, what does worship for the pagan look like? Well, you know, a lot of times it's blood sacrifices, it's uh, sexual sin, it's some sort, of, uh, some sort of abomination, right? Being used to glorify some deity or, you know, without any shame, Satan himself. So, you know, when I think about the Antichrist, the beast and the second beast, that gives breath to the image, right? It, it, they make people build the image and then they, and then he gives the image breath. And I just, I, I have a hard time thinking that it's just going to be a statue in the temple that's, that talks. Uh, it's just, to me, it doesn't make any sense. It feels like it's something a lot more. And when you start thinking about worship in the antithesis way from worshiping God, again, what are we really talking about here? Are we talking about something that is um, a little more abhorrent than we might initially think? It, you know, because we often think, oh, worship, we're just, you know, we're on our knees, we're bowing down, oh, we worship you. Uh, but I think there's something a lot more going on here. And um, 
I actually think, I don't know, but I think that the image is going to, and it has the power to, to, to kill you if you don't, if you don't uh, worship the image. And so there's got to be something where not only is this worship necessary, but if you don't do it, you get killed. It's, it's got to be, if you're thinking in terms of modern day technology and the world grid and, and all this stuff going on, it's got to have something to do with being plugged into this, uh, I guess you can call it ether or the, the worldwide web. And what I mean by worldwide web is not just the internet, but, but whatever system is going to be in place that is really going to lock us down. I mean, we're already connected, you know, in many ways through digital devices and through all these gadgets and stuff like that, but it's going to be at a different level. And so when you think about the image and, you know, the image desiring worship, I mean, could it be, because it also ties in with the mark, right? Because the second beast also employs or deploys the mark of the beast. So there's got to be something where you're tied in to the grid and somehow your life depends on the grid. And, you know, who knows? I'm just speculating here. I'm just thinking out loud. But could it be that there's some sort of, um, you know, maybe some kind of abhorrent behavior that needs to be accomplished in the sight of this, this image, which basically would be a monitoring system where if you don't do certain acts, uh, you will be cut off. The energy supply that supplies your body will be cut off and, and therefore you, you will die. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I'm just speculating. Uh, I, I love to speculate, but and we do this a lot on on this show. But you know, it just made made me think, like, what what is really going on? But then it also made me think, if if that's the case, if if not worshiping the beast and not taking the mark causes this system to kill you, is there even a choice? You know, I, I do believe there is a choice as far as, you know, taking the mark or not. I think it's pretty obvious. But what I mean by choice is that, you know, are we going to know? And if we keep integrating ourselves with machines, and, you know, I talked about Google Glasses or Google Glass, I'm sorry. I kept saying glasses in the talk, but it's glass, Google Glass, and other augmented realities that are coming online, where do we draw the line? I mean, is it an actual chip that enters us? Is that the mark? Or is that the beginning of the mark? Uh, I don't know. But this whole idea of an image has to be something that disseminates and interlocks with the mark of the beast. And they have to work hand in hand. And I just get the feeling that it's got something to do with technologies merging with man and of course the theory that i presented that you know because i really didn't talk about aliens and stuff too much in my talk but the setup was that essentially if and when these demonic beings show up as ats a lot of what they offer will be verified because the, our top scientists will look at it and say yep you know the science works the math works and um, they are going to hand us essentially the very thing that humanity has been seeking for ever since the fall, really, uh, of what's you know alluded to as the philosopher's stone, or or the sacred knowledge that comes from the emerald tablets, or 
the you know the lapsit axillus or the you know all those names i think they're all talking about pretty much the same thing this this thing that causes us to ascend into godhood and that's just something that um it just makes too much sense and uh it makes too much sense that in science we're looking for the unif the grand unified theory right the theory that covers everything and again if we're looking for the grand unified theory it sounds a lot like the prisca theologia and i don't know i just feel like digging into some of these things more i mean it really these last few weeks of putting this thing together i've really gained more interest in mythology and and because the more you look at technology and what's happening the more it kind of points you to the past right and especially if we're talking about the days of noah we're looking at ancient history and what some of these occultists are saying about the the ancient times and it's just fascinating to me that you know the, the most people most christians anyway don't necessarily acknowledge the occult at all they'll say you know the occult is just evil pure evil and i would say to that yes you know it, it is not a good thing and it's not a necessary thing it's not for everyone but there is a certain level of looking at it and knowing that these guys have a twisted worldview and opposite antithetical worldview to christ and christ crucified and god you know in yahweh in the garden and everything they they have an opposite view of him um you can sort of use that that method if you will that that uh set of glasses to render some of the things the occult is saying and make sense of it and say okay you're saying this but really if you look at it from the opposite direction you're looking at it the right way and it makes sense that it makes sense with the bible it's not inconsistent with the bible uh and it makes sense with what we see around today and what we are told is going to happen as the prophetic things that were written about thousands of years ago starts to unfold so i don't think it's really a bad thing it's just not for everyone i think it's much better to and i made this point to someone who asked a question this weekend as well but i think it's much more important to be able to watch things that are of occult roots and know that that's what they're doing uh, because i think most people while they poo poo the occult outright they themselves are out there watching movies watching tv shows and you know reading magazines and reading books and things like that that are that are just you know uh, completely influenced by the occult and even when even in topics that you don't think really are influenced by the occult so you know it's better to have eyes to discern and and sit through things that you know are occult and be able to compartmentalize or to render some of the things you're seeing or reading and know that it comes from that satanic deception uh rather than just sort of poo poo it and then go on and you know indulge yourself in movies and books and tv shows and things that are filled with the occult so uh you know i would say because you know the person that asked the question is hey you know my, my kid watches the disney channel and there's so much occult you know symbolism and stuff on the disney channel what should i do well you know i guess the child was only two years old so if that's number one you can't tell a two-year-old like what you're watching is the occult you know it's just not going to work uh, but as as a child gets older as as uh they start to understand things i think it's important to be able to discuss with them like hey 
this isn't good stuff. You know, this isn't uh, the, the things you, where we are watching, we are watching with discerning eyes. And if we can raise our children to have that discerning eye, they will be able to be in the world and not of it. And that's really the main point here, I think, uh, for all of this is to be able to walk through life and know that we don't belong here, that our eternity is not in this flesh and blood system we're in now. And I'm just really, I'm honestly, after this weekend as well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the resurrection of our bodies. I mean, I just can't wait. I think it's going to be so cool. And I think when we stand in front of the gates of heaven and we enter the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth are all set in place, I feel like it's going to be a moment when everything's going to make sense. And we're going to know the reason why we had to go through what we went through in this life and just humanity and human history and all the troubles. We'll know. We'll know exactly why we had to go through that. And then what I'm really excited about is being in the presence of God and being able to pick God's brain, so to speak, and just learn all the things. And we can do that now, which is the great thing. You know, he gave us his word and his word has stood the test of time. And uh, which it makes sense because God being outside of time, God being eternal in both directions, even though time space, the time space continuum may not be eternal in both directions. It's just great to, to be able to go into the word and study it. And, you know, I, I think what I'm going to do also as I work on part two here and I'm, you know, it's, it's almost become this thing where, where it's, it's just, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It'll be great. But at the same time, I really want to dig into the Bible. I really want to look at some of the, the prophecy stuff that happens in Isaiah and Daniel and, and, uh, of course, Revelation, uh, and, and just really dig in. And, and I want to get a better grasp of the Middle East. And I know Obama and the Pope are supposedly going to be there in, 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 I guess when this airs, they'll probably be there already. But, um, and, and who knows, this could be some very, uh, significant events that occur there while, while the new Pope Francis and Obama are in Jerusalem. But, um, nevertheless, I, I want to get a better grasp of, of some of the things that go on in Israel just because everybody talks about Israel. But there's something, I don't, maybe it's because I'm just a, a younger Christian, uh, where, you know, I haven't been looking at this stuff for, for decades. But there's something about the talk about Israel that doesn't rub me right. I I'm not sure what it is. And, it, and it's not as simple as, yeah, I just don't get it. You know, I, I do get a lot of it. But I, I, there's something about how a lot of prophecy teachers seem to point to certain scriptures and say, this has to happen, or this is what's going to happen, or this is what it's going to look like, that doesn't necessarily sit well with me. So I, that's something that I just have to parse out myself and and I feel like that's on my heart to really dig into as we go forward here. And, and, you know, there are, it's difficult because there are so many different views on stuff. I, I, I don't feel like I can go through all of them, but I do want to let the text speak for itself. So I feel my method of study as I go through some of that is just going to be to read the Bible and and to read it just all the way through without any commentary to obscure anything the first couple times through and then you know and then start maybe looking at commentaries where i have questions about certain passages and see what people have said and try to piece things together so all right 
that's about all I have. And I'm sure all of you are probably sick of listening to me at this at this point. Um, Basil will hopefully be back. We plan to interview Brian Godawa, who is the author of several books, uh, Noah Primeval, uh, a couple other books that I don't have in front of me, the titles right now, but he has been on A View from the Bunker, and um, he was a great guest on A View from the Bunker, and he sent me a book called The Myth That's Fact, where he really talks about some of these things of using some of the, the mythological worldview as a way or a tool for evangelism and apologetic. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to him about that, and uh, that'll be the next show, hopefully. And hopefully Basil will be back. I, you know, I wasn't told exactly when he's going to be back, and I wasn't told where he was exactly going. So <laughs> Basil is out there somewhere, and hopefully, um, and he'll be. Hopefully, he's doing well, and he's uh, uh, making music that brings people to the Lord and and whatnot so if you have any questions you can email me uh i'm gonna go ahead and give out my personal email which is face like the sun at gmail.com and uh or you can email canary cry radio at canary cry radio.com uh you can visit our facebook page facebook.com slash canary cry radio you can visit canary cry radio.com where we have forums and comment sections and all sorts of stuff uh the forum actually you know, I've neglected it for the last few days just because of everything else going on, but there's some great people in there and they're doing some, there, there's some great conversations that have sparked up. So definitely go in there, check it out. LA posting, uh, the response that I had to Ephesians five eleven blog of putting my name on, you know, the, I'm a heretic. I'm on the heretic list now. So anyway, um, yeah, go there, check it out. There's lots of stuff there. We we haven't updated it a whole lot, but we plan to just keep digging and just adding more things and new stuff there. And hopefully we can interview, uh, uh, we have some plans, if you will, for Canary Cry Radio as we move forward. We, we definitely want to talk about all the stuff happening prophetically and biblically, but we want to tackle certain topics that that uh, sort of like the, the topics of fear and sound that we did uh, a few episodes ago, we plan to have a water episode, which should be a lot of fun. There's a lot of things pertaining to water, uh, both conspiratorially and most definitely biblically. And so we're looking forward to that. Also, I've been, I've been meaning to put together, uh, well, we, we've been talking about it for a while, but we just haven't been able to piece it together, oh, an episode on worship music. And you know, this was a, this is a, this is going to be a little bit of a challenging episode because we plan to interview several people and, and just bring them, you know, all to the table, if you will, and look at how worship music is supposed to be, how it may be corrupt, how, uh, you know, music in general, how do we use it to, uh, as a way to glorify God and things like that. So, those are things that we have planned. Those are things that we have in the wing. Um, also, your emails. We will be reading more of your emails uh, in the near future. I, d- I didn't want to read any today just because it would be just strange for me to read it. I think with Basil there, there's a little bit more of a dynamic, and we can go back to the format that we're used to with two people instead of me just rambling on for as long as I have. I'm surprised I've uh, been rambling as long as I have, and I'm surprised that you're listening still because... Uh, 
Boy, there wasn't much substance in this show. It was just rambling. So, until next time, remember to think outside the cage. Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com. Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at canarycryradio. If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. Review us on iTunes with five stars and give us a thumbs up on StumbleUpon.com. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially, you could do so by visiting CanaryCryRadio.com and clicking the support tab. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, remember to think outside the cage.